Good morning. We're here to worship the Lord, to bless His holy name, and we're very thankful for your presence on this beautiful Lord's Day. I know we have several people out of town for the holiday weekend, but I also know we have several visitors today, and you're traveling, and maybe you're visiting our area, or you're with family, and we are especially grateful uh, for your presence with us this morning. Thank you for joining us for this hour of worship. Uh, It's normally my responsibility to pray for the new babies uh, when they come, but I asked a couple of the elders, you know, should I pray for my own daughter when we show up on Sunday? I mean, that's a good thing to do for a father to pray uh, for his child. But one of them said, no, I think somebody else ought to pray for you. And uh, I don't know, I should have asked him what he meant by that. Hmm. No, in all seriousness, I so appreciated T's prayer this morning, and I appreciate all the prayers that you have lifted up for me and for my family and for our newest addition. And on top of the prayers, just the generosity that you have shown, uh, and the food and the cards and all the kind words, you have gone overboard in showing your love uh, for me and my family. And it's just a reminder all over again that God has immensely blessed us uh, in allowing us to work in Winchester. We believe God is the reason that we're here in the first place. And we just couldn't be more thankful to be living in this community, uh, to be working with this congregation. And we again say thank you for all the love that you have shown to us. We are in the midst of a sermon series right now. We started it last week. We're looking at three of the Old Testament prophets. We had to narrow it down because there is so much uh, in the Old Testament that can be considered prophetic literature. And so we're just looking at three. We're looking at Amos, we're looking at Hosea, and we're looking at Micah. And the reason for these three is because they were all written around the same time period in the 8th century B.C., so quite some time ago. As we get started this morning, I want you to imagine that this auditorium is a time machine. And I thought about adding some, uh, you know, some special sound effects and getting the ushers to blink the lights to make it more realistic. But then I decided against that. And so you can just use your imagination that we are all seated together, all 400 of us, in a time machine. And we're going to travel back in time. And I want us to first go back to the 1920s uh, to America. This is the decade in which probably the oldest of our members right now were born. I don't know that we have anybody who was born in, in our membership before 1920. I could be wrong. So this is, this is quite some time ago. This is almost 100 years ago. In America, it was a decade of great economic growth, widespread prosperity for most people. World War I had ended. The country was recovering well due to postponed spending. There was a boom in construction. And there was rapid growth of goods like electricity started coming into homes. People started driving automobiles by the droves. It was during this decade that the United States of America became the richest country in the world. And we secured our status as the largest economy in the world. So on the whole, in the 1920s in America, the economy was thriving and Americans were doing quite well financially. 
So we're in the 20s, but now I want us to travel back even further, and I want us to go to a different place geographically. Now I'd like for us to travel together in our time machine back to Israel. Uh, So we're going across the ocean here, and we're going to go all the way back to the 700s, to the 8th century B.C. And let me paint the picture for you. During this time, Israel was blessed with a fairly stable government. They were also experiencing a time of wealth and prosperity that was unparalleled since the days of King Solomon. And we know how wealthy and affluent that, that he was. In this era, in the 8th century, Israel, they capitalized on opportunities to amass wealth, to grow in prosperity. There was, this was a society that was saturated at this time with self-confidence. They were celebrating their success. They were feeling good about what they had accomplished and where they were as a people. And they believed, most of them believed that their success was an unmistakable sign that God was blessing them. In other words... Look at all of our affluence, look at our wealth, look at our money, our possessions. Undoubtedly, this is from God. And these are signs that God is pleased with us, that He's happy with the life that we're living, and He is rewarding us in return. Here's how the average Israelite thought during this era. Here are a couple common beliefs. We're still back in Israel in the 8th century. Number one, the average Israelite thought that the day of the Lord is coming. Now this is a phrase that has been used, well, throughout the history of our faith. And it's been used in different ways depending on who was using it and the audience and the the time period. In this time period, Israel thought that the day of the Lord, and by the way, this is the earliest appearance of this phrase in the prophets. Amos uses it before anybody else. And it seems that the people of Israel thought the day of the Lord was going to come and it was going to be a day in which God would intervene, that He would powerfully come into human history, that He would prop up His people, that He would place Israel over the nations, that they would have a supreme place in in leading the global community, that He would lift up the righteous and squash the wicked, that He would punish all the nations that had given Israel so much trouble. They thought that the day of the Lord was going to be like that. And therefore, they were excited about the day of the Lord. In Amos chapter 5 verse 18, we are told that they desired the day of the Lord because it was going to be a day of great victory for them and a day of defeat for their enemies. So, the average Israelite was pumped up. They were excited because the day of the Lord was coming. And it's going to be a glorious day. And here's something else that they thought. Our worship is the reason that God is blessing us. We worship God frequently. We worship in the way that God has asked us to worship. They took great pride in their worship rituals. And as a result... Worship to them became a way of of serving God in order to get what they wanted from God. They thought, we'll go to worship and God will be pleased with our worship and therefore He will reward us accordingly. So worship eventually in this era became about magical manipulation of God. 
And, and they weren't worshiping God because they were in awe of God or because they wanted to praise Him, but because they thought it was the way that they could get what they wanted to get. They would go to worship and God is like a gumball machine and you put your money in and you twist the knob and out comes that gumball that you paid for. That's how they viewed worship. They thought our worship is the reason that God is blessing us and if we keep it up, He's going to keep up the blessings. Now let's take the time machine back to the present day. How is it that we think today as the church? First of all, we believe the day of the Lord is coming, right? And this is a phrase that has been reinterpreted for us by the writers of the New Testament. It means something different to us than it meant for them. To us, well, because of people like Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, we're told that the day of the Lord we're looking forward to is the day that Jesus will return. That He'll make His glorious reappearance on the earth. And so we're excited about that day because that is a day that we will be rewarded and that our enemies will be destroyed. So they were looking forward to the day of the Lord. It meant something a little different to them. But we're looking forward to the day of the Lord because that's when Jesus comes back, our Lord and Savior. And on that day, we'll get to experience eternal life with God forevermore. And here's something else that maybe we think on occasion. That our right worship to God brings eternal security for us. It may be tempting for us to think that worshiping correctly puts us in good standing with God. We might have a tendency to become overly confident in ourselves. And we might begin to think that just by worshiping God correctly alone that we can secure eternal salvation and eternal blessings for us. That that that's all God is after. That as long as I'm coming to church every Sunday and I'm checking off all five boxes, the five acts of worship, if I'm coming and, and I'm doing those things, then I'm good with God. And God is going to reward me accordingly. We can We can fall into this trap of thinking that just because we're worshiping God rightly and correctly and regularly, God is going to be good to us and that we will be given eternal salvation. That We're good with God as long as we're doing this. As we've already seen in the book of Amos, we saw this last week, God blindsides Israel with judgment. They did not see it coming. You remember when we talked about all the oracles against the other nations and we talked about, we can imagine Israel is rooting on Amos. Yes, Preach it, brother. Amen. Take him down. He's taken down the the Syrians and, and the people in Philistia and up in Tyre and all the surrounding regions. And then there's an oracle against Israel. And in that moment, they realize that they are under the full judgment of God. There's a story in a book by the author Walter Wangren Jr. And he talks about a congregation where he preached. And every Sunday, he would stand out in the lobby, and he would, in the line, greet everybody who came to worship. And there was a little old lady, every Sunday, in the line, without fail, she would come up to him, and she would either say, I appreciate your teaching today, or she would say, I appreciated your preaching today. Some, some Sundays, teaching, other Sundays, 
preaching, and this preacher, he started wondering, what is she talking about? What is the difference between the two? And so one Sunday, in the receiving line, he finally got up the nerve to ask her. He says, what is the difference? Sometimes you say, you appreciate my preaching, and other times you say, I appreciate your teaching. This is what he writes. Miss Lillian was her name. She was holding my hand in hers, which was work-hardened, her little finger fixed forever straight, unable to bend. When you teach, she said, instructing me, I learned something for the day. I can take it home, and God willing, I can do it. But when you preach, she lowered her voice. She probed me a little deeper with her eyes. When you preach, God is here. And sometimes he's smiling, and sometimes he is frowning, surely. Amos is a masterful preacher. And as a preacher, I admire what he's able to do in his book, in his message to the people of Israel. It's not a pleasant message, but he delivers it masterfully. God is speaking through him, and surely in the message of Amos, God is frowning. Israel is under the judgment of God. And this continues in Amos chapter 5. God is still frowning in our text this morning. If you have a Bible, uh, or even if you don't, if there's one on the rack in front of you, would you grab it? Would you go with me to Amos and open up to chapter 5? This is where we're going to camp out for the remainder of our time. Amos chapter 5, Israel is still under the gun. They are still receiving a message of judgment from God through his mouthpiece, Amos. And I want us to start here in verse 18. Remember what we said about the day of the Lord? They were so excited about the day of the Lord. Listen to what God has to say about their expectation of the day of the Lord. Verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. It is as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Can you see the smiles of the Israelites just melt off their faces? We thought the day of the Lord was a day of victory. We thought the day of the Lord was when God was going to prop us up over our enemies. And now Amos is saying, the day of the Lord's not going to be light for you. It's going to be darkness. It's going to be gloom. It's going to be destruction. Why are you excited about the day of the Lord? And I love the language that Amos uses here. He says, it's it's as if a man was running from a lion, and he thought that he had escaped the lion's grasp only to run into a bear. You think you're going to escape the destruction that's coming on the day of the Lord? Think again. You will not be able to run away from it. It's a man who runs from a lion and then he meets a bear. And then maybe he escapes the bear too. He's lucky twice in one day. This is like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz. Lions and tigers and bears. And he escapes the lion and he escapes the bear. And then he gets into his house and he thinks he's safe in his own home. We all feel safe in our homes, and he leans his hand up against the wall, and what's on the wall but a poisonous snake that bites him on the hand. God says, that's what the day of the Lord is going to be like. You ought not be excited about it. It's going to be a day of judgment for you. Not a day of victory 
There's this TV series called The Man in the High Castle, and it takes place in the United States in the 1960s, but this is an alternate universe in which our country lost World War II. And so we no longer exist as a nation in this television television series. In this series, the eastern U.S. is controlled by the Germans and the west by the Japanese. Now in history... VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, is celebrated as the end of World War II in Europe. But in this series, everybody celebrates VA Day, which is the day that the Nazi forces defeated the United States. And so a day of victory for us in real human history becomes, in this alternate universe, a day of defeat. It's turned on its head and it's transformed into something terrible. That is what God is doing to Israel here. He's taking a day that they were excited about and He's saying it's going to be a day of destruction. They will face on that day, instead of victory, they'll face the Assyrian army. And that Assyrian army will invade them and they'll be carted off into exile. That's what Amos has to say in chapter 3 verse 11. An adversary shall surround the land bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. The 1920s in America were great until the stock market crashed in 29, plunging the world and the United States into what we call the Great Depression. This age in Israelite history is great until you face the day of the Lord, until you face that day of judgment, when I will send the Assyrian army in to take over because of your sinfulness, because of your rebelliousness, because of your unwillingness to follow my will, this age of decadence that you're experiencing is going to end in disaster. That's what Amos' message is to the people. And now listen to what he says about their worship. Remember, they felt a lot of pride about their worship. Our worship is going well. And when we worship God, He blesses us. And so as long as we keep worshiping God, He's going to keep on blessing us. I hate, I despise your feasts, says God. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I won't look at them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I'm tired of hearing them. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Yeah, your worship that you're so proud of, that you think is so pleasing to me, it's not. It disgusts me. And maybe we would would hear, if we were still back in that era, we would hear them say, but why, Lord? Why destruction on the day of the Lord? We are your people. Don't you want good things for us? Don't you want to reward us? And why are you so revolted by our worship offerings to you? What are we missing here, God? God reveals what they're missing. Amos chapter 5 verse 24. Let justice roll down like waters. Let righteousness Like an ever-flowing stream, let justice and righteousness and fairness fill the earth like the ocean. God says, what I want, what I really want is for you to be agents of justice and righteousness in my world. 
And because you're not, because you're not interested in that, I don't care about your worship. And you shouldn't be excited. You shouldn't look forward to the day of the Lord. Now, you might say to me, well, Joseph, there is evidence that they were actually worshiping improperly in the book of Amos. And you would be right. Because God chastises the people back in chapter 4 for worshiping at places like Bethel and Gilgal when they should have been down in the holy city of Jerusalem. So yes, there were some problems with their worship. And they were not worshiping according to what God had told them to do. But I submit to you, I think there's enough evidence in this book that even if they were worshiping 100% correctly, even if they were crossing all their T's and dotting all their I's, God would still be displeased because you know what they were doing? They were trampling on the needy. Chapter 8, verse 4. And there, this book is replete with evidence that there was no concern at all about fair and generous treatment towards other people. They were not in the least concerned about justice and righteousness and fairness and kindness. And because of that, God says, I don't like your worship. In fact, it is a foul-smelling odor to my nostrils, and you shouldn't be so excited about the day of the Lord because it's going to be a day of judgment. Here's one of the bottom lines. Any talk about right worship apart from right treatment of others is a total waste of time. Let me repeat that, because I think that's one of the big lessons that this text has to teach us this morning from Amos 5. Any talk about right worship apart from right treatment of others is a total waste of time. God says, if you're not concerned about the well-being of your neighbors, I don't care about your worship. Stop wasting your time if your worship is not going to change the way that you act out in the world, in your everyday life, in the city streets, from Monday to Saturday. Your life is not backing up your worship, and so I'm not interested in your worship. Religious rituals in the absence of just and righteous conduct, it disgusts God. And so maybe, just maybe, We need to hear God say to us, I can't stand your worship gatherings. I am fed up with your Sunday school classes, with your Wednesday night series. I want nothing to do with your church events, with your activities, your mottos, and your goals. I'm sick of seeing your church building and your grounds and your nice sign out front. I've had all I can take of your singing and your praying because none of it is backed up by the way that you live. What I want, do you know what I want? What I want is justice, oceans of it. I want fairness and righteousness, rivers of it. That's what I want, says the Lord God. And we need to remember when we divorce the two, when we try to have right worship without right living, that makes us hypocrites. And God can't stand it. He can't stand duplicitous, two-faced people who think they can go to church and check off all the right boxes and then live any way they want to live throughout the rest of the week. You know what else it does? Not only does it displease God, it gives all the unbelievers and outsiders even more ammunition. Don't you know that one of the, one of the favorite charges that outsiders bring against Christians is hypocrisy? They're all hypocrites. They act one way outside of church and another way inside. They say one thing and do something different. When we actually do what Amos is describing... We give them even more ammunition to work with. Don't do that. They've already got enough as it is. And they need us 
to live consistent lives in God's service. Well, what about the day of the Lord? The day of Jesus' return. Well, I want you to listen to how Jesus describes that day because this lines up really well with what Amos teaches in this book. Matthew chapter 25. I want you to imagine. I've asked you to imagine a lot this morning. But that's good. That's a good workout for your brain. Imagine that you're there in the audience listening to Jesus teach. You're seated there on the grass or the dirt. Jesus is standing before you. He's teaching. Listen to what he says in Matthew 25 verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory. He's talking about the day of the Lord. The second appearance of the Son of God. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, this is Matthew 25, verse 31, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Yes, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. I'm excited. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So some people are going to make it in, and others won't. And He will place the sheep on His right and the goats on His left, And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. Sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, correct us if we're wrong, but... When did we ever see you hungry and and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you as a stranger, naked? When did we see you sick or, or in prison? And the king will say to them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then, it's not over. Jesus is still teaching. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. A stranger, you didn't welcome me. Naked, you didn't clothe me. In prison, you didn't visit me. And they'll say to you, Lord, we never saw you in any of those conditions. When did we see you hungry, thirsty, a stranger, naked, sick, in prison, and did not minister to you? And he will say to them, As you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous into eternal life. There's just no getting around it. Entry into eternal life is contingent on our care for the least of these. On treating them fairly with kindness, on allowing ourselves to be agents of justice and righteousness so that the earth can be full of it as it's full of oceans. And we might say to God on that day, but God, weren't you pleased with our worship services? We worshiped you correctly. I mean, we had all the five acts down. We came together and we sang and we prayed and we listened to preaching and we gave of our means and we took the Lord's Supper and we did it regularly. I was there every time the door was open. I did everything you asked me to do. And God will say, well, did you feed the hungry? Did you clothe the naked? Did you visit those who were in prison? 
Did you welcome the stranger? If you didn't do any of those things, then I don't care about your worship. It doesn't matter to me. I'm indifferent towards it. In fact, I'm not just indifferent towards it. It is disgusting to me. Because your worship didn't determine the way that you lived in the rest of your life. So away from me into eternal punishment. God wants our lives to be characterized by justice. He wants us to be concerned with the least of these. And so in our lives, we should let justice roll down in fair and generous treatment of people who are a different color than us. Because after all, that song we've been singing, it's true. Jesus loves all the children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, and every shade in between. We should let justice roll down in our concern for the poor and the marginalized in our society. Because the reality is, people are born into cycles of poverty in our world that are immensely difficult to escape. And we, who were not, can hardly understand that. We need to let justice roll down in fairness and kindness toward all our neighbors, regardless of their income level or the clothes they wear or the cars they drive. We need to let justice roll down in our care and concern about every single life, from that unborn child to that senior citizen, all the way from inception to the grave. Let justice roll down. And when we begin allowing justice to roll down in our lives, when we allow ourselves to be conduits of righteousness, then God is pleased with our worship. And then we can begin to look forward to the day of the Lord. Until then, God says, let justice roll down and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. He says in chapter 5 and verse 15, hate evil and love Good. Doesn't that sum it up? And establish justice in the gate. Be concerned about righteousness and justice in your everyday life while you're out in your community doing what you do throughout your week. Establish justice in the gate. And it may be, it may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. It may be that the Lord will be gracious. And we can go a step beyond that. We can be more confident in that statement because our Bible doesn't end at Amos. We have the New Testament. We know about what God did for us through the life, the ministry, and the death of Jesus Christ. And so we don't, just have, we don't have to just say, God may be gracious. We can say with confidence, God has been gracious. He has been through Jesus Christ his son. And you have the opportunity today, if you haven't taken it, to come and say yes to Jesus. To lay your life, to cast yourself before him and say, I want to die to myself and I want to follow you all the days of my life into eternal salvation. Jesus paid the price for you on the cross. And it wasn't anything that you did to deserve it. While you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. And because He hung on that cross, you can receive the righteousness of God. And God can begin to transform you into a person 
who is concerned with the least of these. Who is concerned with enacting justice and righteousness and kindness and fairness for all God's creation for the rest of your life. It's the best mission that there is. If you're looking for a purpose, if you're looking for an aim for your life, if you're wondering how God wants to use you, look no further than this. This is your purpose. To be saved by God and to be set apart for good works that He has already prepared for you. If you're ready to be made one with God, to have your sins washed away, and to be to know with confidence that you'll be with God forever, not because of anything that you've done, but because of what He's done for you through Jesus, then we invite you to come. Or if you need prayers today, if the message of Amos has convicted your heart that your life is, there are some things amiss that need to be corrected, you have the chance to do that. Or if you need prayers, you want to meet with a couple of our elders, you have an opportunity for that as well when this worship service is over. This is a time of invitation. We invite you to come as we stand and sing.